Welcome to the Archways Podcast. Archways is recorded on the campus of Johnson C. Smith University and intended to support the goals of the Center for American Cultural and Race, which is housed on the campus of our partner institution, Guangdong Bayun University in Guangzhou, China. The center and this podcast are designed to help our Chinese colleagues and friends understand and experience American culture through the lens of race. Here now are your hosts from Johnson C. Smith, Dr. Brian Jones, and Dr. Matthew DeForest. Welcome back. Um, you may have heard that uh, the United States recently had a presidential election, um, and this podcast is not going to focus on the politics of the election, but the process, uh, because we have a rather unique way of actually selecting a president uh, in that we don't have a direct election for the presidency. Um, we have a, a group, a, an elected body known as the Electoral College, uh, who actually makes a selection, and it's got a, um, a rather extensive uh, and big history. Unfortunately, uh, we have a historian here to help us walk through uh, all of that process. Um, so um, let me begin asking you, Brian, about the um, some of the groundwork documents, because I think for uh, those listening, Understanding the difference between the Constitution, its amendments, and the Federalist Papers that yeah, right, um, right. that were there at the beginning uh, will help set the stage for the rest of the discussion. Right. So, so at the at the at the time that the the thirteen American colonies um, began to to break away from Great Britain uh, in the in the late eighteenth century, and so the seventeen sixties and seventeen seventies, they. Uh, Try, trying to conceive of a form of government separate from a monarchy, which would nevertheless be rooted in enlightenment principles of liberty and, and the personal property and sort of what what we in the United States today recognize as um, uh, our basic or core rights that are enshrined in what later becomes the Bill of Rights. Um, but not everyone in the in the new nation could agree upon all the things that they needed to agree upon. Uh, there were a wide variety of views about that what the nature of the new government should be, about its structure, about what kinds of things the government should and should not do. And as part of the process, uh, we we see the emergence of two different groups who argue uh, over uh, various uh, issues. And so when, when documents are presented and ultimately when the Constitution itself is drafted, there are different viewpoints and we get uh, people writing articles about the, uh, the Constitution and its value and its, its, its successes and failures and whether it's good or a bad thing. And one set of those papers is ultimately what becomes known as the Federalist Papers, which is a collection of documents that are written by a, a handful of uh, so-called Federalist Party members, although party is not really the right term. It was more like a faction, which included um, Alexander Hamilton and uh, James Madison and John Jay, uh, among others. Um, Hamilton would become the first Secretary of the Treasury and is the Hamilton for whom the current Broadway hit is named. Um, James Madison will ultimately be the primary drafter of the Constitution, uh, and John Jay will later become um, a Supreme Court justice. I can't remember if he's a chief justice or not, but he's a Supreme Court justice. I believe he was the first Supreme Court chief justice. So uh, those three men would write a series of articles in favor of the Constitution, and there's a whole set of debates which we characterize or we call in the United States as sort of the the early republic or the federalist period in which the Constitution is is framed and, and written. 
So the Constitution itself is is actually very, very short uh, by most standards. Um, there are only about, I think if I'm right, seven articles to the Constitution, and at this stage uh, about 27 amendments, if I remember correct. So it's, it's a very short document. So by contrast, for example, I believe the Mexican Constitution has something like almost 300 amendments to it. Um, the American Constitution is a document which is designed to do one primary goal, and that is to limit the power of government. It's, it sets up the structure of the American government into three branches, uh, the judicial, the, the legislative, and the executive. The executive is the presidency and the court system. The legislative is the Congress, and the judicial is the Supreme Court and the other uh, following courts. And those three branches are intended to balance each other out um, through various um, means that they have to affect policy and affect change so that in order for something to happen in the United States, you have to have general agreement among all three. Um, the legislature can pass laws, but the president doesn't need to sign them. If the legislature and the president pass laws together, the Supreme Court can rule them unconstitutional. Um, the the president doesn't have the authority to originate um, taxation legislation, for example. There's a set of, of things which are enshrined in the document which are designed to create a structure for government, but ultimately to limit its power. And so that's the reason the document is short. It, it, it spells out explicitly what the government of the United States can do. And if it is not enshrined in that document, then in theory, the government cannot do it. So it's a, it's a very short list of what's possible. And if, you, if you're not on the list, then you don't get to do it. As, as I recall, one of the statements is that any power not enumerated in the Constitution devolves to the states. Right. And that's the, the, the sort of another major component, which, which I didn't mention yet, which is the role of the states. Um, the, the government of the United States is a federal republic. Um, it is democratic in its nature in so much as that the individual has rights and those rights are preserved through a government and the government is operates by the consent of the governed through the process of voting. All of that is democratic, but it is not the traditional democracy that the ancient Greeks would have recognized. The ancient Greeks imagined a, um, a democratic system in which one man equals one vote and then whoever gets the most votes wins. That is not how our system functions um, in, in many cases. Um, we are not a direct democracy, uh, in, at least in the presidential realm. So we are a republic, and that means that the states themselves are unified under a single federal government and that the individuals and the states possess certain rights. Um, most of them, uh, I would say, they possess m the most rights, if you will, and the federal government has a limited ability to, to, to sort of enforce them, if you will. So, yeah, the states are, are critical, and the states themselves have a role to play in this. For example, if you want to amend the Constitution of the United States, if you want to change, for example, how senators are elected or if you want to change whether or not the government can levy income taxes, you have to get approval of, of the legislature and of the states. Uh, interestingly enough, you do not need the approval of the president of the United States to amend the Constitution. The, the president has no role in the amendment process. It's just the legislature and the states themselves through their representatives. And um, that then leads us to the uh, to the complicated issue of the Electoral College. Um, and when I say complicated, um, 
I, I did a little bit of background research before this or tried to do a little bit of background research before this uh, and was surprised at the length of the very general document that I was reading um, going into all the details of the variations on the Electoral College, um, the history of the Electoral College, um, and uh, its its various changes over over the course of American history, short though that may be. Um, Very short yeah. <laughs> compared to Chinese history. Certainly, yeah, certainly compared to China. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, it starts out very early on in a, in a controversial manner because the, um, the initial idea of the founders is almost immediately changed in terms of the Electoral College, um, where uh, the, the initial thought is you would elect the electors and they would go off and deliberate about the president. Um, and then with the almost immediate development of political parties, mm, right. um, it's a shift to you're electing electors who are going to support a party uh, rather than go off and be a, uh, a statesman-like figure who looks at, all right, who would be the best person to lead the country. Right. And sort of the, the, that's sort of the, the distinction between the democratic um, ethic and the Republican reality. And, and we're using the term Democrat and Republican with little uh, lowercase letters, so uh, Democratic and Republican, not political parties, but in terms of political philosophy, because the... Um, the the founders of the country were men of of standing and privilege. They were, um, if if my count is is right, of the the fifty five delegates to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. Um, if I remember right, something in the order of um, in the high forties were all were lawyers. Um, there were a large number of slaveholders. They were all white propertied males. Um, and they were all uh, came from or had some form of wealth. These were not um, yeoman farmers or uh, day laborers. Um, this was the sort of cream of the crop, the best educated and most successful by wealth standards of the of the people in the colonies. And so there's a lot of literature about this and, and the, the, their motivations for founding the country the way that they did. But essentially, they want to build a system which is in its core democratic and provides for personal liberty, but which does not provide for mob rule, which is a term that is often used in this country to describe something like direct democracy. Uh, where, you know, so uh, if everybody gets together and just votes one way, they can elect whomever they want. Or if a, if in, in the particular example is if a demagogue comes to power, uh, a person who is able to stand up and to command large numbers of people appealing to their passion and not their, their intellect, that person might be in a position to command a, a majority of people when, in fact, that may not be in the best interest of the republic. So they, they work to devise a set of systems which create a check against two things at once. One, they want to make sure they prevent the rise of an imperial or dictatorial or tyrannical power. They want to prevent the rise of a king. And at the same time, they want to prevent the notion of mob rule, um, sort of what happens ultimately, what, what, what later will develop in the course of the French Revolution when the idea of democracy continues down a path which ends in the terror and, and the, all the associated uh, horrible things there. So they're trying to build in these apparatus. Uh, they're trying to build systems which create a stable but, um, how do I say it, conservative government. Um, it's not designed to be um, 
a, if you will, quote unquote, liberal place in the modern context. It's a very conservative system, which is not easy to change and um, um, difficult to um, overthrow. And and these ideas and ideals were were set in place in reaction to um, Shays' Rebellion in Massachusetts, where right. yep. um, people were literally voting debt out of existence um, and, and making sure that the popular vote never overrides the rights of the minority. Right. Right. And that's an actually a, an excellent point um, because the Republic... And that's the the issue of, of democracy and what is a democracy. In this case, um, the republic is designed, uh, Matt, as you say, to protect the rights of the minority. Uh, and by minority, we mean the minority party or the minority interest group or faction um, so that just because you have the most votes doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want. Uh, this is most clearly noticeable in the United States Senate which has a set of rules which are designed to protect the interest of the minority party. Um, the, the oldest tradition of them is this, the filibuster, where an individual senator can prevent the passage of votes, uh, a passage of a bill, simply by objecting and, and, and uh, taking the floor uh, through parliamentary means and holding it until the bill expires. And that, that is possible. It is, um, it is, how do I say, legal. Uh, it's tradition. But um, the Senate is an area where, in addition, you have to meet a certain threshold for certain kinds of bills. It's not enough in most cases to get a simple majority. Uh, there are 100 members of the United States Senate. That's two members for every state in the union, um, not including Washington, D.C. This is um, everywhere from Hawaii to Massachusetts. And each one of them has two senators, and so there are 100. But in many cases, you, you need more than 51 to do something. You may need as many as 60. Or in the case of something like presidential impeachment, you need 67 um, to, to get a majority. Um, the idea of that is to ensure that simply because one has the majority of votes in the Senate does not mean that a, one party can steer the country in whatever way it chooses. And, and that leads us to... Um to some of the interesting uh, issues about the Electoral College because the, the number of electors is determined by a, a fairly simple formula of the, uh, the number of senators plus the number of representatives uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, and those are apportioned to the states um, along the lines of, of their actual representation. So. Right. Right. Uh, so the largest states have the largest congressional delegations. Everybody gets two senators. Wyoming has two. Texas has two. North Carolina has two senators. But in the realm of representatives, it's very different. Those are apportioned by population, as you say. So California has upwards of 60 members of the House. Uh, New York State has upwards of 50 members of the House. Um, places like Texas and Michigan and Ohio uh, and Illinois and other populous states have large numbers of House of Representative members. Um, by contrast, a state like Wyoming, which is, which is a very, very large state, but doesn't have a lot of people in it. So Wyoming, I believe, only has one representative. Yeah. Um, the same is true, I think, for Montana, for Idaho, um, for some of the Dakotas. So you end up with a system which is a, it's a bicameral legislature, so it has two houses, the Senate and the House of Representatives. 
and that the Senate has 100 members and the House has 435 total, which is the total number of congressional representatives in the House. Those folks are elected every two years and, and reconstitute the House every two years. Uh, and the Senate senators are elected, if I recall, every four years, every six years. Thank you. Um, but one third of the Senate is elected at any given time. Right, right. So they're on a kind of rotating system, right? Right. Um, but the in general, all these people that we just talked about, the the representatives and the senators are not electors. Correct. Um, and the electors are chosen at the state level, uh, and the votes are taken at the state level, um, and and that gets us. Well, I'll I'll let you take the first crack at least at, at explaining <laughs> right. how the electoral right we may have to go around a couple of times yeah. to get there so so when so in as as a, in the spirit of this notion of avoiding both a king and mob rule uh, the electors are put in place as basically a buffer uh, and I'm not sure how that will translate but a, a space a barrier if you will between the va- the majority of Americans who will go out and vote and the president of the United States so the, the people go out and vote. Their votes are tallied um, across the nation, but they are tallied within the state that they live. And so North Carolina will vote and Michigan will vote and Texas will vote. But when the votes are cast, we don't simply tally up the total number of votes across the nation. What we do instead is we tally, tally them up by state and determine which of the candidates wins the most votes in that state. And when we do that, we apportion the electors along those lines. So in the case of pick a state, uh, North Carolina, which if I remember right, has... um, 15. I was going to say 16. Uh, I think we're going to 16 in the next census. We have 15 electors, which means we have... There are two senators and 13 congressmen. But the 15 electors are not necessarily those folks. They are different individuals. If the presidential candidate wins the most votes in North Carolina, he wins, in our case, all 15 of those electoral college votes. And those 15 members of the electoral college are expected to vote the way that their state voted and to certify that vote with the ultimately with the Senate and the vice president of the United States who have the responsibility for tallying these electoral votes. So when presidential candidates go out campaigning, they're not campaigning necessarily in the most populous states. Uh, for example, uh, the biggest states in the union population-wise are, are California and New York. But those states are typically won by Democratic candidates. So in, in recent past, Hillary Clinton won both of those. Uh, Barack Obama won them, Bill Clinton won them, and so on. Hillary Clinton rarely went to California to campaign because she knew that she would win that state and win those votes. Where she went to campaign was in states that we call battleground states, which are the ones which may not be certainly Democratic or certainly Republican. Not because she needs all of the votes of the people in North Carolina, but because she needs those 15 electoral college votes to get to the the magic number of of 270. Um, In the electoral college, you only need a a majority to win. So you need basically half of 435 plus one. We typically use the number 270 because... It's hard to get to anything below that in terms of the way the votes are counted. But an electoral college uh, voting um, uh, process uh, ultimately will produce a candidate who gets more than 270 electoral college votes, and they would win the election, which is exactly what happened with Donald Trump. 
who did not win the popular vote by the tune of about 3 million votes, but won the right states and collected enough electoral college votes to, to put him over the majority. And, and that's a very, very rare occurrence. It's only happened four times in United States history, as right. I recall. Uh, four? I, I, I have no reason to question that, but I can only think of three. Um, other than the John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson one. Is that in your list? Yeah, there was that one. There was Bush Gore. And Rutherford B. Hayes. Right. And then this one. So the four. So the, Quincy, the John Quincy Adams one is when he, there's, there are four candidates and there's no majority and it starts to go back and forth. Yeah. Rutherford B. Hayes uh, did not win the popular vote, but won the election based on a whole series of things. And the same is true for George W. Bush, as you said, who, who, lost the popular vote in 2000 against Al Gore, but won the Electoral College by a pretty slim majority. Mm-hmm. Uh, by contrast, um, take a vote, uh, an election like 1960, where John Kennedy's um, popular vote was very slim, but won a sizable majority in the Electoral College. Right. Um, it's just having to do with where the votes are cast and how they're cast. So, so just so this is clear, because... Um Usually in the United States, the these two things, as we say, line up. So there, there's never any questions. Right, usually. Um, but what happens at times like this that Americans have to be reminded about how this all works. Um, so when I walk into the voting booth, I have in front of me um, the listed names of the candidates. Um, and they're state laws regarding who gets listed first and in what order right. and, yes. <laughs> um, and things like that, because where you appear on the ballot will actually influence the number of votes cast for you. Um, but I cast my vote for a single party, essentially. So it, it was the choice between Donald Trump and Mike Pence or, um, or Hillary Clinton, and I can't believe I'm forgetting... Uh. Uh, Senator of Virginia. <laughs> right. Kane, Tim Kane. Tim Kane. Um, <laughs> so, it seems so long ago. It was just, you know. It, it's been an exciting time <laughs> yeah. here. Um, so that that's who I register my vote for. Um, but what will then happen is that after those votes were tallied, uh, those votes get reported, and there is a group of people who select from among generally speaking, the party faithful, um, the electors who will go to the state capitol, Raleigh, right. uh, North Carolina here, where on a certain day of the year, they cast their votes for the presidency. Those results then get sent to Washington, D.C., where they are put in two special boxes um, and carried into the U.S. House of Representatives with the current vice president presiding, uh, and those votes are then cast. Um, it is possible at that stage for, and this is this is why, incidentally, all this story has a purpose, um, why you don't have representatives and senators serving as electors. Right. Because at that point, the um, an objection can be raised to what happens in a state, but you need from a single state, from the state, I believe it's for the state in question, a representative and a senator both signing a document saying, we have a problem. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure of the, that appeal, but that sounds right. Um, 
at which point in time the U.S. House of Representatives certifies the election. Uh, and then another month later is when we have the inauguration. Right. So that yeah. that's where we, at the recording of this podcast, we are between the U.S. House of Representatives certifying the election uh, and Donald Trump being officially president-elect uh, and the inauguration, which takes place on January 20th. Right. Um, there, there is no interregnum period in all of this because uh, Barack Obama is still president in the United States and will be up to the moment of the inauguration. Right. Exactly. All the way up until the moment of the oath of office. Right. Um, so that's, that's the function of the Electoral College as it exists now. Um, and as we said, it's, we've only had this split four different times. Yeah, it just it just so happens it's twice in the last sort of four or five cycles, um, which is um, part of the reason there's such a um, there's been a more vocal outcry this year about the electoral college and its value is because it happened twice in 200 years of history and now it's happened twice in the last 20 years that someone has lost the popular vote and won the electoral college. Because it, it 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 just creates a situation in which presidential candidates um, need not campaign in certain places and may may appear to be non-responsive to people in those states. Um, presidential candidates, and and we had this experience on our campus. They go to the same places over and over again. Uh, Bill Clinton was on this campus once. Um, Hillary Clinton was on this campus. Uh, we had several other. Um, uh, 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 I don't know what to call them. Um, Proxies. Minions. <laughs> Other people sent out on their behalf to come to campus to talk about the candidate on several different occasions. So that's because Hillary Clinton's campaign was trying to get out the North Carolina vote in order to win this state and put this state in her column. So when you're tallying up electoral college votes, you're tallying them up by state. Um, in, in many cases, electors are... Uh, required to vote according to their uh, uh, the vote within their um, state, but I don't think that's the case everywhere. Um, in some cases, a, a, an elector could decide, despite the fact that his state voted for one candidate, to vote for another in his, as an electoral vote. It it has happened before. Um, it, it's illegal in a lot of places to do that, um, but it does happen and, and has never changed the outcome. Yeah, we we had a small handful of electors. I can't. It's somewhere between four and seven um, this time who changed their vote. Mm. Um, I believe it was one one person from Texas who was supposed to vote for Donald Trump did not, uh, and all the others were strangely enough people supposed to vote for Hillary Clinton uh, who did not. Um, right. They voted. They wanted to vote for Bernie Sanders. I think right. So, yeah, it was like Washington State and places like that. So yeah, so it's a curious system. And and to be sure, it's not it's not the most um, elegant model uh, in in terms of democratic processes. And and from the outside, it looks very confused, and it looks um, it, it looks like democracy halted. Really, it doesn't look like a democratic process. It doesn't look like it's fair. It doesn't look like it's um, equal. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't look like what democracy is supposed to be, and and the large reason is because it's not designed that way. It's it's designed as a mechanism to prevent mob rule and the establishment of a new monarchy. And you do that 
by creating a buffer between the voters and the actual selection of a new president. Um, and and that, that makes it possible for, if you will, folks like James Madison and Alexander Hamilton and John Jay to be in a position to say, okay, the voters got it wrong to, to determine the voters. The voters were swayed by a demagogue or the voters were bought off or the voting process was corrupt or something else interfered with our democratic process. They might even they might even have said, well, the Russians have interfered. And at that point, they say, for the good of the republic, we are going to ignore the votes of the vote of the people who, who committed votes this year because of that problem and determine who the next president is on their own. Again, it's not necessarily a democratic process, but it's the one which is designed to to prevent certain things as opposed to create the maximum amount of liberty. And the, we should also, to a degree, try to explain that some of this was, strangely enough, um, set up initially to protect states which were smaller. Yeah. Um, the, the two initial plans... I believe it was the Connecticut plan and the Virginia plan. Do I, I have those? There's a New right? Jersey plan too. New Jersey uh, plan. There's, but there's three, and the other one never gets a name because it becomes the ultimate compromise. Yeah. <laughs> it becomes the great compromise. But I think it might be the Connecticut plan. But the initial two were the Virginia plan and I think the New Jersey plan. Uh, those were two initial uh, attempts to create an elect a representative system. And as Matt said, the the size of the state mattered because in the formation of the early republic. Uh, the Mid-Atlantic and the northern states, New England states, were more populous than were the southern states, um, partly because the northern states had been the center of early migration from England and later from Scotland and Ireland, but also because the southern states, in many cases Georgia and the Carolinas, were full of, of uh, slaves who did not count in this context and therefore did not factor into the electoral equation. So northern states, if you will, Massachusetts and later Connecticut, but also New York and Pennsylvania, had large populations and Georgia and the Carolinas did not. So how do you protect the rights of people in those states at the same time that you protect the rights of the people in Pennsylvania? And uh, it ultimately becomes a series of dueling proposals about how to make a government which, which protects something like a democracy, but also the rights of the minority. Because it would be easy, just to be sure, it would be very easy for a, a majority government to completely reshape and reform the government toward its own ends. If, if a majority party had control of both houses of legislature and the president's uh, office, they could appoint uh, the appropriate amount of judges. And if they, if we didn't have these kinds of systems in place, they could amend the constitution in their own favor. They could uh, restrict voting in their own favor. They could take a number of actions which would guarantee the dominance of their own party over the long term. And in a, in a direct democracy or a, a sort of a Athenian based democracy where one man, one vote, there would be nothing to stop them from doing that. They'd simply be able to change the rules however they liked and you didn't win the election, so you lose out. What that would mean, though, is that the republic would be extraordinarily fragile, and could break uh, and could break down and ultimately dissolve if uh, less than scrupulous or virtuous people became uh, representatives or, or or president. So, given all of this complicated history and complicated background, um, is there anything? else about this process that you think would help our Chinese 
audience understand the again staying away from the immediate politics of this last election uh, as much as we can while still explaining all of this um, the the process by which we go about and do these things because one of the one of the issues we haven't touched on um, has to do with voting rights themselves um, because there there is as I was doing this long research um, or reading this long article, uh, in one of the amendments to the Constitution, it's possible to uh, actually toss out an entire state's vote mm, uh, yeah. if it's discovered that um, that state has suppressed uh, voting rights within within that state, which actually has happened, uh, according to my notes here, at least once. Hmm. Um I believe that was in the the Reconstruction period. Oh, I was going to say it was, it was Reconstruction or Civil yeah. Rights period. That's what I was thinking. Um, so did, and there there's a long, complicated history with voting rights as well about who gets to vote, um, when they get to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, three of our constitutional amendments uh, actually center on that. The yep. extending the the franchise regardless of of race or color, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of gender. Uh, and then setting the voting age for federal elections to eighteen. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. And those it, voting rights, of course, is the is the the central aspect of all this, which is the reason why it gets so much attention and rightfully so, and why tinkering around with voting rights is the most riskiest proposition in all of this, because no matter what the ability of the people to vote, to cast their vote, to express an opinion on, on what they think the direction of the country should be is the absolute critical point. And nothing else functions if that if that breaks down. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I suppose, depending on how you want to look at it, it's been an, it's an evolutionary process for voting rights in this country. Uh, initially, the voting was restricted to white males of property, and that was later expanded to to white males, and ultimately there's a series of changes over the way in which uh, black males can vote, and then women can vote, uh, and then uh, we lower the voting age to 18, and and so we we create opportunities for more people to be fran- to be enfranchised, but it's been a gradual process. I mean the 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 amendments which deal with uh, uh, voting for um, African Americans comes after the Civil War in the 1865, 66, 67 period. The voting for women comes in the 19, early 1920s. Um, we lowered the voting age during Vietnam, if I remember right, um, the Vietnam War. And, and so it continues on today. Um, unfortunately, a lot of uh, noise is being made about voter fraud, um, about people voting twice um, and things like that. And unfortunately, it's created a, a very sizable debate about the sanctity of voting and um, things like voter registration and voter qualifications and things like that, uh, all of which run the risk of, of upsetting the balance of, of the, the constitutional system that we've designed. And some states have begun to experiment with automatic voter registration, that you actually have to opt out of voter registration rather right. than opt in. Right. Um, I believe that's Washington State that has that now. Yeah, and we're and we're somewhat unique among large democracies. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me for India, which is the world's largest democracy, but voter turnout in the United States is regularly less than sixty percent, and sometimes not even fifty percent. 
um, which is to say that maybe in a given election, only about half of the people who can vote actually do vote. Um, I I cannot remember what turnout percentage was like in this last election. It may have been it may have been higher, but the total number of votes cast was lower. I'm not sure how that translates, but um, in most cases, Americans uh, don't vote. They only vote uh, maybe two two out of three is a large number of voters. We usually get something more like two out of four or or um, three out of five. So, is there anything else that um, that you think we should we should explain regarding all of this process? Uh, yeah, I think we should uh, go ahead and tell folks about um, what happens when a president resigns or is impeached. Oh, of course, uh, because it is it, you know you talk to people in this country and they they make it they wonder about whether or not uh, this particular president Trump will survive his first term, not because. Um, of anything that he will be hurt physically, but because he might may either quit or he may be impeached. And um, even at this stage of the game, uh, there are very serious questions about Donald Trump's uh, conflicts of interest, because as president of the United States, you are required to divest yourself of basically any profit-earning opportunities and to ensure that you are not the beneficiary of any sort of benefit which may come from a foreign power and Trump has a problem on this front because he's such a he has a wide-ranging business interests and business stakes that he has uh, a whole lot of places where a conflict of interest could rear its head. Um, in the event that a president is is removed from office for whatever reason, he is replaced by the vice president. Um, if the vice president happens to be removed at the same time, then they're replaced by the Speaker of the House of Representatives, if I got that right, or the president, pro, the Speaker of the House, mm-hmm. and then the president pro tem of the Senate, and then you get into cabinet members, I think, after that. Um, but uh, presidents are free to resign whenever they want. Um, it only has happened, um, a resignation has only happened once. That was Richard Nixon. Several presidents have died in office, which we, we don't wish in this case, of course, Um only a handful have been impeached. Um, Two, I think. None successfully uh, removed from office. Bill Clinton was impeached. Andrew Johnson was impeached. And I think Andrew... Uh, uh, um, John Tyler was impeached as well. Was he but, impeached but, but it not never in got trial? To the, it never got to the Senate, right? Okay. It was impeached in the House and that was it. But no president has ever been removed for that reason yet. And I so don't, we should we should probably explain what impeachment is. Yeah, impeachment is the process by which an elected official is removed from office for cause. In the case of the presidency, the standard reads in the Constitution that a president can be removed for quote high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, those are not defined any more specifically than that, um, but they are interpreted um, as uh, relatively serious offenses. Um, you know, uh, in the case of Bill Clinton, was impeached for lying under oath in a grand jury deposition in which he was called before a um, uh, a, a judicial body to give testimony, and he pledged to give the truth, and he lied. He was impeached for that reason. Richard Nixon was impeached for his role in the cover-up of well, the Watergate murder. He didn't murder. get impeached. He resigned. Well, he resigned, right. He was going to be impeached for that, right. Yeah. Andrew Johnson was impeached because he violated the Tenure of Office Act that the Congress had passed and did so against the wishes of Congress, and so he was impeached. Um, so uh, impeachment in this country is a two-step process. One is, is in both steps involve the Congress 
The first step is the House of Representatives, which is the 435-member body made up of representatives from all the states. They would basically come together and investigate the claim or the charge and effectively charge the president, if you will. They would offer an indictment, if you like, of the president for whatever crimes they determine. That that indictment would then go to the Senate where a trial is held uh, under the, the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court uh, chief justice, and the senators would vote on the guilt or innocence of the president and uh, his removal. In the case of Bill Clinton, who was impeached in the House and tried in the Senate, uh, the Senate did not muster the appropriate number of votes, which is 67, to impeach him. And as a result, Bill Clinton was impeached in the House, but the trial did not find him guilty in the Senate. And as a result, he was able to stay in office. And his approval ratings went up after that, too, by the way, <laughs> which is <Yeah>. bizarre. <laughs> Um, so I, I think, you know, the, the, what I try to tell my students and I think what the real message is for um, um, folks uh, in China looking at this particular issue is, is to try to remember that the United States, the United States of America is, is democratic, but it's not a democracy. It's a republic. And the republic is designed to function differently than you might ordinarily think a democracy should function. It has elements of it which are, are very responsive to the people and it has other elements of it which are not. It's designed to be a deliberative process, a, uh, a gradual process. Nothing happens fast. Um, nothing happens quickly. Rarely do you see bills passed in a short amount of time. Rarely do you see things move through the courts in a short amount of time. Um, it's, it's designed to create the smallest, most effective government to provide the maximum freedom for the maximum amount of people. And unfortunately, that process is not always pretty. And the Electoral College is one of those things which we almost never even talk about. It's only on circumstances like this where a president wins the Electoral College but loses the popular vote that we go back to this topic and say, hey, what, what went wrong? Well, as it turns out, nothing went wrong. This is exactly how it's supposed to work. Uh, it's worked, it's functioned exactly the way it was designed. It may have produced an outcome that many people don't like, but this is the way the, the rules are set. And, and as a result, Donald Trump was um, elected in the Senate um, under the um, direction of Joe Biden, vice president of the United States, who counted the votes and uh, tallied the results and certified the election on behalf of the American people. And on January the 20th, um, Donald J. Trump will take the oath of office and deliver an inaugural address, which at this point we're hearing is already going to be short, which would not surprise me one bit. No. <laughs> Very short inaugurals. Um, I can't remember who has the – somebody has the record for the shortest, but I can't remember who it is. Uh, Warren Harding has the one – has the record for the longest one, and which he delivered in the rain, and then he caught pneumonia and died a month later. So bad luck there. Is that uh, yeah. Harrison? Harrison. William Henry, William Henry Harrison. Correct. Yeah. Thank you. So I made a mistake there. Not Harding. Harding had his own troubles and not related to the flu. Harrison. Exactly right. Thanks, Matt. Um. Okay, I, I think that covers it. Well, as much as it, it can be covered and explained. As much as we can cover it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a confused and, and uncertain system, and I think the really, really sad part about it is not that we would be giving a discussion like this to a Chinese audience because I think many Chinese students and, and otherwise might be have questions about the Electoral College. But the really sad part is that um, the American people have a very poor understanding of the Electoral College and its function and don't understand why it was designed that way and what it means for this, that, and the other. And um, it's unfortunate, but it worked the way it was supposed to work. 
Okay, and if, if any of this is unclear, um, as usual, you can reach out to us via email um, and send any questions. If you have questions, we'll be happy to answer them. We can do a follow-up uh, follow discussion to, uh, to cover anything that you've got questions about. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Archways Podcast is a production of Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina, USA, in partnership with the Guangdong Bayun University in Guangzhou's People's Republic of China. Archways is made possible through generous funding from the United States Embassy in Beijing, China, and through the College of Arts and Letters at Johnson C. Smith University. Additional support has been provided by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Subscribe to this podcast through iTunes. You can email us at jcsuartsletters at gmail.com.